right. So, yes, that's a waffle. Yeah, he's like, you got a tie. That's the first thing I noticed. Yeah, well, it's a Cubs tie because, you know, Cubs. Cubs. Chicago Cubs. Cubs tie. Wow. Tie, which has nothing to do with what we're going to talk about this morning. So, uh, but yes, I'm wearing a Cubs tie. Uh, we're talking about the modern age. We're in the 20th century now, or at least we will be here. We're turning into the 20th century, where we're going to be building up empires. You know, different different superpowers has had empires for a while, but now it's a totally new branching off of empires. New superpowers stretching their their wings. Old superpowers deciding to have completely different empires. Turn of the 20th century, kind of a big to do with that. And a lot of that starts with the Spanish-American War, which is where we ended the last time, right? So even though, yes, it's going on in 1898, I, genu I, I generally think of the Spanish-American War as kind of the, the first major thing of the 20th century, because it kind of sets the tone for a lot of things. The Spanish Bourbon, King, remember the, the different houses? We had the Bourbons, the, the Habsburgs, etc. The Bourbon King, Alfonso Twelfth dies in 1885, like a couple months before his, his son is even born, which means that his wife, the Austrian Habsburg Queen, Maria Cristina, is now the regent. So Spain is kind of in flux. Now, if you're a Spanish colony and Spain is kind of in flux, what might you be tempted to do? Well, there you go. Now is the time for them to set, at least push for changes. At least let's do something different. So in Cuba, a guy named Carlos Manuel Quespedes uh, decides to free his slaves. He calls for reform. He calls for abolition of slavery. It's like, the, America has, has abolished slavery 30 years ago. We really need to abolish slavery in Cuba. Let's do that. Let's, let's try to change things. In the Philippines, Andres Bonifacio decided to lead an armed insurrection to kick out the Spanish. He's like, let's, let's violently remove them. Let's change things. Now is the time. Unfortunately, the Spanish government said, now, now's the time that we circle the wagons, we get real traditional. Very, very conservative. This is not a time for change. This is not a time for uh, reinventing ourselves. And so they start cracking down really, really, really hard on their colonies. Leading to whole movements. In the, the Cuba Libre movement in, in Cuba, the Catipunan movement in the Philippines. Armed revolts, big, huge things. Okay? In large part, in, 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 in response to Alfonso the Twelfth dying, President McKinley jumps up and says, "Wait a minute! Wait a minute! Wait a minute! America wants to help. Let's let's all sit down at the, at the negotiating table. Let's not fight. Let's try to work through things." You nobody remembers anything about McKinley, but he did a couple of really cool things. Other than Carrie Nation saying, "Oh, he's a lush," because he probably is. There's no. You know, there's absolutely nothing that gives us the impression that he was, but Kerry was sure that he was. But McKinley actually was not a bad president in a lot of ways, and he's trying to fix this. He's like, let's let's just, America is happy to host peace negotiations, let's try to figure this out. Having said that, the Americans weren't always necessarily all that helpful, because the news media starts playing up Spanish atrocities in Cuba, saying, oh, the Spanish are horrible, but they shoot all their people, they're I will say, though, that is kind of true, because they were kind of nasty. The Spanish created the concept of the concentration camp. The idea of taking whole civilian populations and imprisoning them during wartime situations. There have been people who have done stuff a little bit like that prior to this, never like this. So you, 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 you take large chunks of civilians and do that as a way of trying to control the war, as a way of trying to hurt the other side. That's a Spanish invention. So, enjoy. Even, even the term concentration camp uh, is a Spanish invention. Anyway, point is, eventually, after a couple of years, the Spanish government uh, changes hand in terms of elected officials, and a, and a slightly more liberal government comes in, and they call for reforms. In fact, they even call back the Spanish governor, a guy named uh, uh, Butcher Weiler, is what, they, is what they called him, because uh, he was just really nasty. Uh, the Spanish governor in, in Cuba, they call him back, which makes the Spanish loyalists in Cuba upset. Because just like in the United States when we had the Tories and things, there were people in Cuba, even in the midst of all this, that said, but we like Spain. We don't want to change. We want things to stay the way they are. 
And so the Spanish loyalists got all upset, and they knew that the Spanish insurrectionists, or the, for this matter, the Cuban insurrectionists, were going to have these big civil demonstrations after Weiler left. If you're removing the military, and we already know that these rebels are planning big, huge demonstrations, who's to say they won't topple the government? I mean, you're leaving the basic Spanish government in charge, in charge of, the, of, the, of the island, you're taking your military away. So what do you do? You're a Cuban nationals who want strong Spanish control. You're afraid that once they remove their military, the rebels are going to take over, and the Spanish are moving their military. What do you do? What? Do you have any options? You're in Cuba. What do you do? Ask America for help. They said, America, please come help us. Send me. This is one of those times where, I mean, like, there are times in history where we claim this. This is one of those times that actually happened where government said, could you please send a military presence, an American military presence, to help police our country? Really, really. And so the U.S. sent Captain Charles Sixby and a bunch of Marines aboard the USS Maine to, to dock in Havana. Does that sound familiar? Anybody ever hear of the USS Maine? That's right. It exploded in the, uh, in the harbor of Havana. I like how the guy's playing. Yeah, do you love that? <laughs> Can you flip? This is, this, is a, this is a contemporary thing. This is, this is propaganda at its best. It's not just exploded. It's men dying. These guys, you don't call for a medic for these guys. These guys are not going to make it. Nobody knows why it blew up. Okay? Let's, let's get that out of the way right now. It could have been due to a Spanish mine or a Spanish torpedo. It is a possibility. Except, it's far more likely to have been because uh, they used to store their munitions right next to the coal bunker, and the coal bunker had a tendency to spontaneously combust. Tendencies may be a strong, a strong, occasionally spontaneously combusted. Which is not a good combination, because then it sets off the munitions, right? And that's what it looks like happened. A, a bunch of subsequent investigations, uh, some by the military, one really interesting one by National Geographic several years ago, showed no indications of external penetration. The explosions all came from inside pushing out. There was nothing from outside pushing in, which would have been like a mine or a torpedo. So realistically, probably, this is what happened. It's just their munitions explode because their coal bunker spontaneously. Exactly. They could have. Why on earth the Spanish would have done that is beyond anybody's understanding. That's the other thing is like, that would have been the craziest thing. If you're going, you're sending a warship specifically to defend Spanish interests in Cuba so that Spain remains in charge of Cuba because the last thing that you want is a war with Spain. Why on earth would the Spanish go, ah, blow it up? It makes no sense. So, Sixby, the captain, who actually survived because he was in the back of the boat and it blew up in the front. He survived. He even requested that the Navy not send another warship. He's like, okay, no, 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 no. When you send something for us, because there are a bunch of survivors, when you send something, do not send an, oh, another warship at all possible. I don't want to start some sort of military thing. This is an accident. Let's not make a thing about it. If you send another warship, it's going to get weird. So don't do that. So Sixby was like, this is not a military thing. So the Naval Inquiry at the time said, clearly it was a Spanish mine. Clearly Spain is trying to push us. Now if you put all this stuff together, the newspapers are saying Spain's being bad. McKinley's saying we would love to involve ourselves in international politics. The Navy is saying, you know, I think Spain's at fault here. American temperament at the time is, I'd kind of like to go to war with Spain. Yeah. And the American people bought it. They went nuts. They said, to hell with Spain, remember the Maine. That was the, we always only remember the second half of that. But then, okay. but remember the Maine. Spanish are horrible. Look, the guy is flipping out of the ship. This is horrible. Papers like the New York Journal definitively, clearly identified the destruction as, the uh, destruction of the worship Maine was the work of an enemy. Somebody, was trying to attack 
good, healthy American boys. Anybody remember who actually published the New York Journal? Want to take a stand? Anybody remember anybody who was a publisher? But I don't remember his name. I thought Randall Hearst was on the other side. No, William Randolph Hearst. William Randolph Hearst wanted to sell more papers, so he specifically told Remington, who was his illustrator, stationed in Cuba, he said, you furnish the pictures, I'll furnish the war. I want a war. It sells papers, it's good for my other business interests, let's start something. Because we can win it. We can totally beat the Spanish, so let's do it. What do you mean? William Randolph Hearst apologized. Oh, I see. Well, the Navy, the Navy has never officially declared what blew up the Maine. There have been multiple things that said, we could be this, could be this. We've never officially said it. And since, ostensibly, the Spanish-American War was because of the blowing up the Maine, there's nothing to apologize for. By the way, you'll notice that the paper says, Assistant Secretary Roosevelt convinced the explosion of the warship was not an accident. Because the Assistant Secretary of the Navy is Theodore Roosevelt. Right? We ought to talk about. Theodore, he hated being called Teddy. Hated. Yeah, he hated the name Teddy. Hated it. Theodore Roosevelt Jr., because his dad was also Theodore Roosevelt, grew up rich but very weak, asthmatic, had all sorts of physical problems. So he was very bookish. His dad realized he's very weak. He has all sorts of problems. And so moved him out last time. He encouraged... Uh, throwing himself into rigorous exercise, he built a gymnasium for him, built a swimming pool, said, uh, you bookish intellectual, I want you to focus on building yourself up physically. And he did, and he became a mountain climber, he was a boxer, was a hunter, was all sorts of things. So he's a, he is like the world's physically toughest intellectual. Because I mean, he grew up like studying all sorts of languages and reading books and writing books and all that kind of stuff, and then became the Ubermensch, you know, here. Tough guy. Also became a, a lifelong outdoorsman, and by 1898, by the time we've arrived here, Roosevelt has written, already written scholarly text on naval history. He served as a New York State Assemblyman. He'd run for president back in the 1880s, became a cowboy for a couple of years, cleaned up the rampant corruption within the police force in New York City as the police commissioner. Thoroughly, he went and thoroughly modernized all their, all their like, got a CSI team, worked on fingerprints. He actually walked the beat each night personally to make sure that the cops were walking the beat. He threw out all the crooked cops. He was only there for a couple of years, like two years, and totally changed how New York City does police work. Kind of an amazing, kind of an amazing fellow. Yes, Commissioner Gordon was, in the modern take on Commissioner Gordon is totally based on Teddy Roosevelt. I mean, the original one was just an old white guy with a, with a pipe and white hair. But then they kind of reinvented him about 30 years ago. And he's a little bit younger and red-haired mustache classes. Like, you go, he looks like Teddy. He's this tough cop who comes into Gotham and cleans up the corruption in the Gotham Police Force. You go, it's Teddy Roosevelt. So, Batman and Teddy Roosevelt. Enjoy. Anyway, but then he finally became, he kept, every time he would conquer something, he'd go, okay, now it's time to move on and do something else. So he became the Assistant Secretary of the Navy under McKinley, so when they finally declared war on Spain, it really shouldn't shock you that he resigned as Assistant Secretary of the Navy so that he could enlist in the army so that he could be some of the troops going to Cuba. Because, of course, he's not gonna, a guy like Teddy is not going to sit behind a desk during something like this. So he's the king of, okay, I'm going to just resign and go do this now. Okay, I'm going to resign and go do this now. After the war, he became this even bigger national hero, becomes the governor of New York, and then vice president of the United States, and then when McKinley dies, he becomes president, then he gets elected as president. Crazy popular. He was so popular that in 1902, he refused to shoot a bear that somebody had tied to a tree. And so when he did, children across the country wanted their own Teddy's bear. Can you imagine how frustrated a guy like Teddy Roosevelt must be? <laughs> the, the main thing that anybody remembers is this snuggly little teddy bear. Look, it's a teddy, like Teddy Roosevelt. He's like, I did it, 
American War, we normally think of it as, it as in Cuba, but it was in Cuba and the Philippines, two different Spanish holdings. So, in Cuba, the most celebrated battle was Roosevelt's Rough Riders going up and, and climbing up uh, San Juan Hill alongside the Buffalo Soldiers. Except most people don't remember that the Buffalo Soldiers were there, and they tend to think of like Teddy Roosevelt riding a horse because it's the Rough Riders. And, yeah, but they're Infantry, so um, anyway, uh, actually, there, there were cavalrymen, anyway, that's not the point. They ran up the hill. In the Philippines, the most celebrated battle was when Dewey defeats the Spanish in the Battle of Manila Bay. Takes out like the entire Spanish fleet, loses, I think, 40 guys. It's one of the biggest routes in naval history. Huge. One of the main reasons why we even intervened in the Philippines is we just recently lost our only Pacific port to Germany. Because Germany is getting their big... Because when you think of Germany, you think tons of Pacific holdings, right? They were trying. Germany at this time was really trying to grow in the Pacific. And so Germany just took our last port in the Pacific, and so we went, hey, we'll help in the Philippines against those mean... Spanish, because we can totally take that, and we'll have a Pacific port again. Yay! The Germans said, all right, fine. We're going to arm the Spanish loyalists in the Philippines against the Americans. So the Americans landed 11,000 American troops in the Philippines and took over the country. Because land wars in Asia work well between superpowers when you're fighting over something that neither of you actually owns. But the biggest front of the war was in public opinion. The war became this huge, unprecedented example of propaganda, like this famous cartoon, The Spanish Brute, the main sailor murdered by Spain. This is what a modern Spain looks like, and there's all of our dead guys, all of which are covered in blood. Every single one of them have blood, blood here. There's actually blood dripping off the propaganda. And on a daily basis, the media made popular songs. I mean, one of the most popular songs in, in, in 1898 was a song called Remember the Main. People were buying it all over the place and playing it on their pianos at home. Everybody was buying colorful buttons and medallions and wearing them. Everybody, remember the main, remember the main, remember the main. Every day, people are told to think fear and vengeance, not critically evaluate. Don't stop and think. Feel strong. Feel strong. Eric, you got a big smile. Sounds similar to certain things. What? What? Are, are you suggesting that in the modern age, we still tend to be, we still tend to think in terms of being emotionally pushed one direction or another as opposed to critically evaluating things and that the media may or may not have something to do with that? Yes. No, whatever. No, no. Again, gotta say, presidential debates, just not what they used to be, okay? It's just kind of become an ugly clown show. Yeah, let's just do that, clown show. Where it used to be, there were at least points in history where, there are also points in history where it's still a clown show, but there were points in history where people would actually say, here's what I was planning to do, and the other person would say, I don't think that's going to work because of this and this, and they'd use wisdom. And, I know, it's crazy, I know. It's been a while. 1899, the Philippine-American War goes. You know, how many of you have heard of the Spanish-American War before today? How many of you have heard of the Philippine-American War before today? Okay, a little terrifying. The Filipinos didn't much like having 11,000 American troops stationed there saying this is now American soil. America even got official ownership after the, after the uh, Spanish-American War, the, the Treaty of Paris, Spain gave America the Philippines. That was part of their concession. So we actually owned it. The U.S. is so uh, uh, disliked that the same rebels that had been fighting against Spain alongside America are now fighting the American troops. Because they're like, well, you're still this colonial power. Um, we still don't want you here. But not under the leadership of Bonifacio anymore. Because he'd been executed by a fellow rebel named Aguinaldo, who had then taken power becoming the president of the First Republic of the Philippines. 
So he kills his own his own superior, becomes in charge. At which point America says, he's a tyrant! He's a dictator, which he kind of was, but he's a dictator. And so by destroying the republic, we are saving democracy. We are going to destroy the first Filipino republic. We're going to crush it for your benefit, Philippines. And he was kind of a jerk. Because in part, he continued and ramped up the Spanish custom of using concentration camps. Because that's the way you control people, is by making them really scared of getting thrown into a concentration camp. He also then dispersed his army, because he's like, I can't go toe-to-toe -to -toe against the Americans like this. So we'll do guerrilla tactics. We'll just run out in the, in, in the jungles and shoot the, at them from, from trees and things and blow stuff up. This will be great. But America figured out stuff about how to deal with guerrillas, in part by using things like concentration camps. So America ramped up the concentration camp idea by corralling all the civilians and putting them in concentration camps. At which point, Aguinaldo was beaten, the Philippines become an official U.S. military government. We have a military governor there. And then eventually, 1901, we turn it into a U.S. territory with its own self-government. And then, for the next several decades, over the next century, it goes through a flip-flop of Japanese occupation and then dictatorships and pseudo-republics and poor Philippines just got bounced around quite a bit. During the American occupation, the U.S. Army was tasked with trying to figure out how to deal with Muslim terrorists in the Philippines. And so, what do you do? If you don't know exactly what to do, if they're all over the place, but you don't know exactly how to stop them, I mean, you can occasionally catch a, a group of terrorists doing one thing or another, but, I mean, this is fanatics. How do you deal with fanatics? You can't just say stop it. You can't just throw them in prison. Just shooting them doesn't do anything because they still see themselves as martyrs. So what do you do? A guy named Colonel Alexander Rogers came up with an interesting novel idea. He said, when a squad of terrorists are captured, all but one of them should be shot. The one left alive should help dig the graves for the other ones and lay the bodies of like a, a body of a dead pig or two in the graves with the Muslim terrorists, which no good Muslim is going to like. And then that one who wasn't shot gets released to tell everybody else this is what happens to Muslim terrorists. They get buried with pig carcasses. Which was amazingly successful! Within a couple months, terrorism pretty much dried up. They're like, <sighs> okay. <laughs> 1939. Movie The Real Glory. That tactic was attributed to uh, Gary Cooper's fictional character. Lately, it's been misattributed, even by presidential candidates, to Captain John Blackjack Pershing, who was kind of a famous guy in World War I. But Blackjack Pershing, who'd written in his memoirs about seeing this tactic being carried out. Pershing himself wasn't a big fan of the tactic. So everybody goes, yeah, Pershing used to do that. No, 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 he didn't. Anyway, so thanks to Michael, <laughs> trying to help out here. Thanks to Americans' modern problems with Muslim terrorists and the fact that we tend to like simple answers to complicated questions, there are people who have suggested that why don't we do this? Why don't we do this? Why don't we round up Muslim terrorists and shoot them and stick their bodies in a grave with pig carcasses? Help me out here. As an American who is a Christian, what should your response to that be? And for the record, Michael's being facetious. Let's be clear about this. But seriously, what? Answer this as an American, answer this as a Christian, either way. I think the feeling would be more outraged this dragon part of that. Okay, why? Because uh, they're, I mean, they're, it's, it's, you could either stand up and say, oh, I don't want to go through this, but most of the time when people are beat, based on history that we've seen, they just, they react harsher back. Okay, so it is just, it's amping up, you are fighting fanaticism with, trying to, to ramp up their fanaticism, attacking, using their fanaticism against them that doesn't tend to diffuse the situation in general. Yeah? Along those lines, if you see what they do with the cross of the picture of Mohammed, yeah. then this seems like it would encourage even greater retaliation. You would think so. But it's different with the media and the ability to communicate these things and coordinate together right. than we have today, and they didn't back then. Exactly. As an American, stop, let me break this down. As an American, you are an American citizen. What should your reaction be when somebody says, we ought to take somebody's religion and throw it back in their face? We ought to, we ought to, 
we ought to smother their face in their religion and say, look, because your religion is so foul, let's use it against them. Let's do that. As an American, what should your response be? It should be offensive, given how we supposedly stand on freedom of religion. As a Christian, what should your response be to, there's a member of another religion that is doing things based on their religion, let's do the most foul, heinous thing we can possibly imagine that will offend them the most. As a Christian, what should your response be? Yes, Nikki. I think, I think again, it should be uh, horror, because what Romans did that to us, whether um, putting the people's lives in danger, Yeah, if, if our job ultimately as Christians is to fight for the most lost people, not against them. We're not fighting against people. Paul's very clear about that. Our war isn't against flesh and blood. We're fighting for these people. Why on earth would we do the most offensive thing we could possibly do to put down the people instead of doing all we can do to graciously draw those people in? All right. Germany didn't like this. Germany didn't like the fact that America is growing in its presence in the Far East. And so, when Samoan chief uh, Lao Pepa died in 1898, the Germans brought in his rival, a guy named Yosefo. Uh, they brought him back from exile to take over the, the islands. America and the British backed uh, uh, Lao Pepa's uh, son, Tanumafili, saying, okay, we're going to back this side. Germans are going to back that side. Civil War in 1899 classic Vietnam sort of moment where America and, and Britain are, are, are backing one faction and Germany is backing another faction and Germany wins. And this is still in the Philippines. This is still, no, this is in Samoa. This is, this, I'm sorry. This is in Samoa. Germany wins. And so the tripartite conve uh, convention of Britain, America, and Germany divide up the Samoan Islands between the major superpowers. Which is why today we talk about American Samoa. Have you ever heard anybody talk about American Samoa? That's because there's German Samoa and American Samoa. Except there's not German Samoa anymore. That's just Samoa. That became independent. So there's Samoa and American Samoa. Well, duh! We have the cooler flag! Anyway, same year that the Second Boer War began. Remember we talked about 1886? Um, they, they, they find gold in South Africa. And so all these British speculators, miners and everything, start moving to South Africa. The British demand full voting rights to these non-South Africans. They're like, well, if they're going to be living in South Africa, they should have full voting rights. They should have, you know, medical treatment. They should have, even though they're not citizens, it'd be wrong to call them illegal aliens. They're just long-term visitors. Okay, again, can you see where, even in a modern context, this could be a political discussion that people might have? Okay, so, we demand that they get full rights. And so South Africa says, no, they're not citizens. So Britain sends in troops to make sure that they get full rights. So South Africa declares war on Great Britain. Like, well, we won the last Boer War, but they lost the second Boer War. So Britain totally takes control of South Africa. Both of them lose about the same number of people in combat, but Britain also loses about 14,000 more troops. I mean, they both lose about six, 7,000, but then Britain loses 14,000 due to African diseases that the troops just aren't prepared for. But the British also took that concentration camp idea to a whole new level. Hundreds of thousands of people thrown into, into concentration camps, depopulating entire regions on purpose. It's like, we will take an entire region. There are no human beings left here. Nearly 50,000 South Africans died over the span of two years in concentration camps because of British mistreatment. Just, this is important to wrap your head around. When we think of concentration camps, we tend to think of like World War II and either Japanese camps or, or, uh, or German concentration camps or American internment camps, which 
kind of a different beastie. That didn't start in the 20th century. That started at the very end of the 19th century with Spain and America and Great Britain. Were people treated as poorly in these as they were, like, as we typically think of? Well, I mean, not like Auschwitz-Dachau level, but um, they're not being fed well. And so, the, so most of them that died, died from diseases and starvation. So that's not nice. Nonetheless, the British public said, this is great. Britain's doing a wonderful job. We're fighting the war beautifully, in large part to propaganda written by anybody want to guess? Popular? No. Popular British author of the, of the day? Good guess, but no. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle writes, the war in South Africa and its cause and conduct. He says, no, the war is justified. Britain's being incredibly ethical. We're the good guys. And everybody in Britain goes, good. 50,000 people just die of starvation and disease in the concentration camps in two years. But everybody in Britain thinks everything's cool. Do you understand how important it is that manipulation of mass media, that manipulation of public opinion? Are you starting to get an idea of how huge that is? Yes, Nick. So I watched that show with you came to which was really fun, I thought. But I think in that show he was criticized for this book. Like, he wrote this book and then and every, like, there were lots of people in Britain who were offended because their, their kids or their relatives had died in the Second World War. There were some. Um, I also don't know that I would base my history on Canadian Doyle. But you know. this, is, this is me asking you. Yeah, there were some that criticized, but, but basic public opinion was, oh, cool. Okay. So oh. can you just leave that part out, though? These people were dying in a concentration camp? Sort of. But I haven't read the book, I'll be honest. Okay. So I don't know. Um, same year, the Boxer Rebellion was put down. Anybody ever hear of the Boxer Rebellion? Okay, that's another one. Okay, the area of China known as Shandong over here on the coast was heavily evangelized by missionaries, which is great, right? Yeah. Who, who referred to the young men in the area who practiced martial arts, boxers, because we're foreigners. We haven't got a clue what we're talking about. <laughs> so the foreign presence had grown so much that China decided we need some diplomatic changes. I mean, we just lost two opium wars to Britain. Yes, no, well, the Opium Wars, where Britain comes in and demands that China allow the Indian-grown opium into China. When we think of opium in China and Britain, we tend to think, yes, those Chinese bring opium to Britain. Uh, actually, it was Britain bringing opium to China. That's the direction that that moved. And then the Chinese bringing opium to Britain because, you know, it's a wealth. But, um, so Britain demanded that they bring in, they won the Opium Wars. And so Britain took control of Hong Kong. In fact, they even got a 99-year lease to control Hong Kong so that they could have that port in China to better attack China, which is an interesting thing when you think about it. You know, as part of our concessions of winning the war, you have to give us an ongoing base to attack you in your own country. It's like, well, that kind of stinks to be China under those circumstances. Shush. So <laughs> the new emperor institutes a hundred days reform. He's like, I'm going to modernize the military, I'm going to modernize our industry, I'm going to modernize our education, we're going to work with, we're not just going to lose wars to foreign powers. I mean, we looked over and we saw the Meiji restoration over there in Japan and we said, that seemed to work for them. Let's do that. We're going to modernize everything. That lasted a hundred days before his own aunt threw him into prison. She did a coup d'etat and said, oh, I'm, I'm taking over the country because uh, we need to be Classically Chinese. We don't want foreigners to come in and change everything. So clamp down hard on foreigners. In fact, one of our officials summarized her policies toward the West by saying, you guys take away your missionaries and your opium and you're going to be welcome. Don't try to change China and maybe we'll let you in. Agitated by all this, a bunch of those boxers killed two German priests in Shandong. In response, Germany said, who's this by the way? Anybody know this picture? Kaiser Wilhelm. There you go. Germany sends in the German Navy to blockade Chinese ports. In response to that, all the other European powers go, wait, Wilhelm is going to get stuff. No, we all need to chop up China for us. And so they all come in and start sending troops, and, they, and their legations start um, rattling sabers and doing stuff, which is why uh, Xi's troops laid siege to all the legations. All the actual embassies in Beijing are now under siege by the Chinese army. In effect, the empress declared war on the entire rest of the world. 
By the way, this moment in history is depicted in the 1963 film 55 Days of Peking, starring Charlton Heston. Four weeks in a row! <laughs> Can't guarantee that he'll be here next week. <laughs> By the way, he's playing a character uh, based on real-life Marine Major John Twiggs Myers, who had earlier served with distinction in the Philippine-American War, which nobody remembers, but he was there. And in fact, in the Boxer Rebellion, he gets a Marine Corps brevet medal for his heroism. Good stuff. Anyway, just so that you know. Yeah? Cool. Oh, well, then she already watched 55 Days at, at BK. David Niven, Charles Weston. Okay, anyway. The official crackdown on Christians was intense, especially in the uh, Shanxi province where Beijing is. The new provincial governor ordered the execution of whole missionary families, including men, women, children, everybody. 1900, mobs forced Christians to either step on a wooden cross and renounce their faith, does that sound familiar? What was that like? Japan, back in the 1600s, when they were forced to step on the fumie, the, the depictions of Christ and things, and, or urinate on them or spit on them. You step on the, on the wooden cross, renounce your faith, or we're going to kill you in really, really nasty ways. Really, really nasty ways that I'm not going to go into. By the end of that summer, the death toll included 136 Protestant missionaries, 53 of their children, 47 Catholic priests and nuns, 30,000 native Chinese Catholics, 2,000 Chinese Protestants, 400 Russian Orthodox Christians, collectively known as the, Christ the China Martyrs of 1900. So tens of thousands of Christians died really, really badly. That's part of the Boxer Rebellion. People ought to know this one. This is important. But in the end, the alliance troops from the Western powers forcibly put down the boxers. Because remember, everybody's, everybody, everybody, the entire world is sending troops to stop the boxer rebellion, right? In the aftermath, the alliance troops instituted mass looting and raping throughout their occupied territories. Because, of course you would, you won, right? And plus, these are savages, did you see? They killed tens of thousands of Christians. Now, the Americans officially discouraged looting and for completely forbade raping. They're like, there will be no ravaging of women by American troops. Massive problem. The British held official auctions of looted goods. So, the Americans are like, no, we really don't recommend, don't loot and absolutely don't rape. British are like, yes, well, every Sunday we're going to sell off auction goods. Uh, the Germans turned a blind eye to anything their soldiers did. They're like, well, you're overseas, do what you need to do. The French actually saluted the romantic and gallant troops. It's a little romantic that they found love in China. I mean, c'est la guerre. You know, it, that's, that's such as war. I mean, it's, it's what it is. They actually applauded the raping. Quite bizarre. Chief among those who were, who were pressing for the hard treatment of the Chinese was an American missionary. Because of course he would. He just watched. All these people get slaughtered. He personally, in a like, Scarlet pimpernel kind of way, saved several missionary families during the violence, and he's like, no, you guys, crimes against God and man. So he argued for widespread reforms. He argued specifically for indemnity for native Christians. He's like, everything they had got taken from them, so we need to abolish the worship of Confucius. We need to get rid of all their, their culture. We need to take all of the stuff of non-Christians and give it to Christians. So, he said that all the Boxer Rebellions must be sought out and punished as far as we could possibly do. He himself acted as a guide to lead alliance troops throughout the area, burning Boxer homes, burning Boxer temples, forcibly collecting silver, gold, silk, everything to repay the Christians who had actually survived. So, Christian missionary led the looting and burning against the Chinese people. Several prominent Americans were upset with this, including, specifically, Mark Twain. Because when we think of Mark Twain, we think Huck Finn, Tom Sawyer. The vast majority of Mark Twain's writings were pretty intense and pretty serious. And we keep seeing him here in church history doing stuff. So he wrote a scathingly satirical essay against the Christian missionaries entitled, To the Person Sitting in Darkness. 
He also began, extending the blessings of civilization to our brother who sits in darkness has been a good trade and has paid well on the whole, and there's money in it yet, if carefully worked. That's the tone of the essay. It just gets a little harsher after that. In the end, the general sentiment among the Chinese when all this settled was that Christians are basically white. It's a white religion. Christians are basically greedy, and they're associated with opium and social turmoil and raping and pillaging and conscious destruction of Chinese culture. I'm sorry, Christy, what were you saying just a little bit ago about being the absolute antithesis of what we should be doing in the world? Is this drawing people to Christ or pushing people away? Well, look at Mark Twain. What you talked about that was last week about the looking to Christ against Christianity and if we as Christians Exactly. Now, this is the same year that the Gideons were founded. So, yay! Good stuff, man. Fall of 1898, year before, two businessmen had checked into the Central Hotel in Wisconsin for the night, and the hotel was overcrowded, so they had to actually share a room, which wasn't uncommon back then. But it turned out because, okay, because they sat up all night talking about Christ with one another and encouraging one another, and that was really cool. They decided there ought to be a Christian organization specifically for business travelers to interact about. Let's talk about Christ. Let's talk about sharing Christ with others. Let's, there isn't one of these. There really, there really should be. So the next year, they met with a fellow businessman named Will Knights at the YMCA there in, in Janesville, Wisconsin, to create this new group. And as they were praying, Knights declared, we shall be called Gideons. That's it. That's, that's how the name was chosen. Was it, it was, we were going to be called Gideons because that's what God laid on my heart. Yeah, but, but why? So they retroactively tried to figure out, well, what, why? So the official retroactive explanation is that Gideon was a man who was willing to do exactly what God wanted him to do, regardless of his own judgment as to the plans and results, which is not the way I'd summarize Gideon. But that's okay. Humility, faith, and obedience were his great elements of character. I agree with that if you include the word eventually. This is the standard that the Gideons International is trying to establish in all of its members, each man to be ready to do God's will at any time, at any place, in any way that the Holy Spirit leads, which is cool. So, pointing back to that biblical story of Gideon, the group chose their symbol, the jar with fire in it. Because remember, it's with, you know, they have the torches in it and they broke. So, it's ready to be bursting forth with light at any time. They quickly organized themselves into camps that kind of took them out from the Salvation Army. And they're like, no, we're fighting a spiritual battle. We're going to have Gideon's camps. And we're gonna... They never quite built it up like the Salvation Army, but at least they took a nod from the Salvation Army. Since the early Gideons were all about traveling businessmen, they discussed the best ways to evangelize in hotel settings. And they started, even in their first meeting, they said, well, why don't we, why don't we offer to leave a hotel a Bible? Every time we go to a hotel, we leave a Bible there at the front desk. In 1908, one of their members suggested, well, why don't we skip that? Why don't we just leave a Bible in every hotel room in the United States? Because maybe the hotel would show somebody the Bible. Maybe they wouldn't. Maybe somebody would ask for a Bible. Maybe they wouldn't. Let's leave it in every hotel room. He said, in my opinion, that would stimulate the activities of the rank and file of the membership. In other words, it would give us something to do. But it would also be a gracious act, wholly in keeping with the divine mission of the Gideon Association. Let's do it. So they started providing King James Bibles. Of late, they've started providing a couple of other different translations. But it's become a major focus, if not the major focus, of the Gideon's organization, giving away over 2 billion Bibles in the last century. Get Statistically, they give away two copies of God's Word every second and over a million Bibles, New Testaments, every four days. That's kind of a big deal. If you've ever wondered, the colors are based on where they're being distributed, to whom they're being distributed. I don't know if you're aware of that. So you'll see all sorts of different okay. So orange Bibles are given on sidewalk evangelism. Green Bibles are to college or university students. Red Bibles are to middle or high school students. Camouflage Bibles are for the military. White Bibles are for medical professionals. Brown Bibles are for facilities like hotels or prisons or things. So if you go to a hotel, the Bible in the drawer will be brown. Dark blue Bibles are printed in other languages. So at a glance, when you run into a Gideon's Bible, you can go, ah, I know what this is from. 
It's a lot of orange Bibles sitting around different places, and a lot of, a lot of green Bibles where you just go hand it out in, in universities and on sidewalks that people go, yeah, I don't need them. So you will tend to find a lot of those. 1904, solidly in the 20th century, America declares war on Morocco. You guys are aware of this one, right? Tons of wars. We're warring all over the place. There's a wealthy Greek-American businessman named Ian, Jan, Jan, I'm not exactly sure, because it wasn't, anyway, uh, Perticaris, who moved to Tangier because he was born in America, so he didn't pronounce it anyway. Tangier, er, years earlier, he'd become a pillar of the community there in Morocco. And in May of 1904, a guy named Raizuni, or uh, Raizuli, I'm not exactly sure how it got, that N got turned to an L, but people start calling him the Raizuli, kidnapped Perticaris and his son, demanding a ransom of $70,000 and control of two wealthy districts from the Sultan of Morocco. You're going to give me two states of Morocco and 70 grand. This was not uncommon in Morocco of the day because it was basically the idea was bandits would kidnap somebody, demand the moon, and accept less. $70,000 in a couple of states? No. $40,000 in one state? No. $10,000 in a decent car? Fine. Yes! You know, it's, put that in the wind Classic haggling. Yes, that's classic haggling. In fact, Perkaris himself said, well, I've got nothing against the Rezuli. He's fine. He didn't mistreat me in any way. I have great respect for him. He's a decent guy. He was kind of, kind of a nice relic. Now, granted, he you know, kidnapped me and shot up my house and hurt a lot of my servants. But me personally, I'm fine. We, we just sat around and chatted. And Rezuli guaranteed my personal safety. It was, it's really nice. American went bananas, particularly Theodore Roosevelt. You do not get to do this. Roosevelt and the Secretary of State John Hay, they're like, no, Sultan, you need to act swiftly. This is an American citizen. So they sent seven battleships and companies of Marines to back them up. We will conquer Morocco if we need to, to get it back. In fact, classic, classic maxim that he'd already said and is coming into play, that America should speak softly and carry a big stick. He's the world's policeman, because if you've ever wondered why we're talking about the world's policeman or the world's constable, that's because of Roosevelt. And why would they say he's like the police commissioner for the world? Because he was a police commissioner for New York. Again, history matters, right? Now, the world's policeman? Well, that's because petty. Anyway, so at the Republican National Convention, Roosevelt and Hayes said, here's something catchy. United States likes catchy things. This government wants Perticaris alive or Raizuli dead. Everybody went bananas. Now bear in mind, bear in mind, this is Teddy wanting to get reelected and stuff, right? Because he'd come in after McKinley had been shot. And now he wants to be his own president. So he's wanting his party to be behind him. And after he does this, everybody in America is like, that's right, Perticaris alive and Raizuli dead, yeah! Or Raizuli dead. Yeah, that! Or Raizuli dead! <laughs> all of which was a surprise to the people in Morocco. Because first of all, they're like, well, this happens all the time. What's the big deal? Why is America reacting? What? Kind of like, like when Clinton stepped in, we were like, an American citizen vandalized, and you're going to cane him? In the Philippines? And the Philippines said, that's what we do with vandals. We, we cane them. What? No, no, I think it was, it was, I thought it was the Philippines, it might have been, let's, Singapore, that's what it was, thank you. Okay, Singapore. So this is what I did for coming up and stuff off the cuff. Uh, an American citizen in Singapore committed vandalism, and the, the government of Singapore was going to cane him. And Clinton said, you can't do that. Singapore goes, well, we do it all the time. You never said this is human rights abuse before now, why are you, why are you jumping in now? Because we're America! And B, Perkaros is an American citizen. He's not. He'd given up his American citizenship. He'd renounced it and, and, and leaned on his Greek citizenship because he had been dual citizenship. Yeah. Arguably, Rezuli certainly has a lot more power in the situation than he did before. Yes, because America got involved. We'll see that. Ultimately, we're like, wait, this could blow up in our face. He isn't even an American citizen. What do we do? So the U.S. asked Britain and France, could you maybe tell the Sultan just to pay him? And then we'd go, 
round table, round of paper. We're going to go in and do this. Could you just tell him the fan before we could actually do anything? We're going to go in there and do something. Could you please have him say it before we do anything? <laughs> so, Paracorus comes home safely. The Rizuli got a ton more than he ever dreamt he was going to get. The Sultan went, what? <laughs> U.S. still looks strong, and we owe Britain and France a favor. Captain Jerome, based on Marine Major John Twiggs Myers, who served with distinction in the Philippine American War in the Boxer Rebellion. I tell you, that's America's soldier at the turn of the century. He's in all the movies back then. I know, they're all named something else. It's a lot easier to do that with minor historical characters. Major historical characters, you can write however you want. Minor ones, might, their family might sue you. 1904. Huge revival in Wales. Same year that the, the, the Morocco thingy is going on. A young Methodist preacher named Joseph Jenkins had a vision of himself engulfed in blue flames, sharing the gospel to the world. So he does a series of conventions and meetings in the surrounding areas, preaching the word of God, singing hymns, people having testimonies, kind of cool. People being convicted and converted, especially young women. This is really big among young women, and there's some interesting conjecture as to why, but I'm just going to leave it as... Interesting. And the, moment, the movement grew, and one of those touched by the revival was a young miner named Evan Roberts, who had been praying for revival. He's like, oh, I want a revival so bad. So Roberts was filled with the Holy Spirit at a meeting, and he had visions of hell, visions of Christ's victory over Satan, visions of this huge revival where he personally was going to lead 100,000 people to Christ. And so, Roberts began his own series of meetings. And again, most of the conversions and testimonials involved women and lower-class laborers, which was different. There's no intellectualism going on in this revival. I mean, other revivals, like the one in 1859 in Wales, and a lot of theology, but very strongly Calvinist. This is all just very experiential. The people with the least amount of uh, education, understanding, those people are getting touched right and left. If you notice, this is Roberts here in the center, and all the other people speaking are women at the conference. Eight different women speaking along with him. By the way, this is also a time of social upheaval in Britain, particularly among women and lower-class laborers. There's a whole labor movement that's growing. There's a whole suffragette movement that's growing. So whether you want to say that one caused the other, it's a little hard to know, but they certainly coincided with one another. That at a time when these underprivileged people groups were growing in voice, this movement prominently gave them a voice. And it is possible that upwards of 100,000 people were touched during the Welsh Revival of 1904. It was huge. Tons of people coming to the Lord right and left, stopping drinking, etc. In part because it was extremely colorful. Unlike most royals, this was really, really colorful. There were unplanned testimonies that were popped up all over the place. Meetings often went on for hours, even to, up till sunrise. As the revival went on, Roberts, who had no theological training, no preaching training, nothing like that, became increasingly kooky, let's say. He began interrupting the singing of hymns in the middle of things to speak out against those in the service who are standing against the work of the Holy Spirit. He started calling them obstacles. What are the who are the obstacles here tonight? Start calling people out by name. You, you're an obstacle. You, you. Brian's an obstacle because you don't have faith in the Holy Spirit. The rest of us, we can't encounter God tonight because of Brian. And Brian's utter disregard for the Holy Spirit. He's not letting God move. He told the congregations that you had to be totally unified in their obedience to Christ or else we shackle God's hands. God cannot do anything if we don't let him. So he began to question, even sometimes in the middle of some of the sermons, I don't know if this is from God, I don't know if this is from Satan. Maybe I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, maybe I'm possessed by Satan, I don't know. In fact, he got into trouble by saying that Christians could be possessed by Satan. Because as we all know, Christians can't, right? The Bible is very clear. A Christian cannot be possessed, right? 
Okay, I say this, not to argue that they can, but this is kind of a thing. There's a, there are large chunks of people still, this is a huge debate. We got into this huge debate in my college and in, in, in our campus ministry because one of our pastors said, clearly, Satan can't be where God is. God is in your, in your heart. Therefore, Satan can't be there. Therefore, a Christian cannot be possessed. But God is everywhere. And I actually quoted from the beginning of Job where God is talking to Satan there in the same room. I'm like, th this whole idea that God can't be where Satan is, Satan can't be where God is. I'm not saying that Christians can be possessed. I'm just saying your argument is facile. And this, this was a thing. And this was a thing back then, too. Yeah, but apparently not near him. Anyway. Soon he fell into a depression. He fell back from public life. The revival fizzled once he stepped out of it. Leading to the question, at what point is a move of God actually being driven by human personalities, human plans, human preferences? And how do you decide that? I'm not saying that the entire Welsh revival was just driven by this. But clearly, once the human who was running it left, it all fell down. So at least by the end... It was Roberts propping the whole thing up. So help me out. How do you decide if something is being church, a revival, a ministry, is being propped up by human preferences, human plans, or when is it being directed by God and led by God? How do you decide that? Well, that's one thing, yeah. It can be both. Well, look at the judges. You know, everything went well so long as the judge was still around. And once the judge was gone, we're specifically told. Everybody went back to the way it was. Some of the most obvious, obvious examples would be the mega churches. Joel Osteen is the name that it goes by that people are associated with as opposed to the ministry in a lot of ways. Okay. Yeah, it, all of you bring up a good point. Is it, it's, it's complicated. It's, it's something you need to stop and think about. It's like... Can God use individuals? Yes. Can 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 a movement be God uses an individual as a touch point, or you know, so it can be both, can it? Well, but go on. Well, in Philippians, I mean, even Paul was saying that some do preach the gospel and they see it do this, but I'm still glad that they're doing it. Right. And, uh, I mean, like a, all... like with Apollos, we're just talking about. I don't agree with Apollos on a lot of things, but you know, praise God, he's trying. I wish he would figure stuff out a little better, but you know. <laughs> Am I feeling genuinely burdened and called to this? Or is this what I want, and so I pray that God rubber stamp it? What were you going to say? But also, I think it's not just about you know whether whether God is using this leader or not, but I mean people's responses to that can be so different. Like, what? Why are we following along with this? Are we following along with this because we are being by God or because it's what everybody else is doing and it's the coolest thing? Okay, and, and as that, I'll even go in defense of Joel for a moment. Uh, Joel Osteen. It's wow. the first, last time you'll ever do this. <laughs> at, the, at least on, on a hypothetical level, at what point is it, well, it's a cult of personality because Joel Osteen wants it to be. And at what point is it maybe a cult of personality because poor Joel is trying his level best to do what he genuinely believed God is saying and people are being drawn to Joel instead of being drawn to God, is that Joel's fault, or is that the fault of the people? Is it that we should say, ah, Roberts is a horrible person, because he was, it was all based on his personality? Or do we say, people were being drawn to it because of Roberts? It was the people attending it that should be second-guessing their, their perspective on things. Or is it a both-and kind of, kind of thing? Anyway, 1905. France officially separates the church from the state. Sorry. <laughs> Didn't he? Uh, okay, we're moving on. <laughs> 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 
Phrenology. Let's feel the bumps in this. I know, I know what you said. Okay, France officially does this. France, as we can remember, France has long had issues with the church. Remember that whole cult of reason that we talked about during the French Revolution? Wacky stuff. 1904-1905, the state officially separates themselves from the church. 1904, they cut all diplomatic ties to the Vatican, saying, why should a secular state be interacting with a religious body? The next year, they passed the nicely named 1905 French law on the separation of the churches and state. In the law, they basically codified what they've been built up to for the last couple of decades. They removed all prayers, all mention from God, from all government meetings and addresses. They had already legalized divorce. They legalized civil marriage. They legalized working on Sundays. And in America today, we look at that and go, so? It's kind of a big thing in 1904, 1905. Now we look at it and go, well, duh. Were they Yeah, that was back in the, that, that uh, uh, well, post-French Revolution, yeah. Right. Yep. So they've already been, kind of been doing this for a while, but this now also specified that all public church buildings and all public church building property, all the stuff in it, is now the French government's. That's separation Yes, because up until this point, the government has been essentially giving all this stuff to the church. They gave them the land. They gave them the buildings and things. And so the church has been essentially squatting in public buildings under the government's auspices. And so they say, tell you what, it's all now property of the French government. You have one year to figure out your own place. Go buy your own building. <laughs> Move your stuff out and buy your own building. You can still be a church. Everything's great. At the end of that year, all the stuff in those buildings, what we gave you, all that prime real estate in downtown Paris, etc., that's all French government. And we can even, you can even stay there. You can even stay there, but now you're under our thumb. Now you're under our control. If you stay in your public building in Paris, we get to oversee the size of your congregation. We get to make sure that you're not overspending your budget. And what are you spending your money on? Are you saying anything that's contrary to French law? Are you saying anything that might make people feel uncomfortable? You are now a French government state church because we are separating church and state. And if you go, that's crazy. Anybody have any clue what's going on in Iowa? Anybody been paying attention to Iowa? Huh. We'll talk about that in the sermon. Iowa state law. Okay. This idea that the state can dictate what the church says because there should be a separation of church and state. That's been going on for a hundred years. We look at it now and go, oh, we're losing sight of what that means. You go, Really? hundred years ago, separation of church and state meant the state decides what the church does. Is there any other way of doing it? Can you genuinely have a separation of church and state? Not really, because the state has to have an official position on the church. You have to say, we support it or we don't support it. You can't be neutral, because the, the church, if the church is doing it right, doesn't say neutral stuff. <clears throat> there is no state that can possibly be genuinely neutral about the church. Because the church is, by definition, countercultural, not anti-government. Just we're going to say stuff that governments don't necessarily like. They like that with all religions, yep. Christianity. Well, there wasn't a whole lot other than Christianity going, but yes, all, it was all religion. The law also forbade ministers from serving in government offices or government officials or soldiers from participating in religious ceremonies in any kind of official capacity. Again, this is very much the way we do it today. People are very uncomfortable with the idea that some pastor might run for president. People are very uncomfortable if a president were to go give an honest-to-goodness religious sermon in, in a service. They might be able to go and talk at a church, but they can't talk about religious stuff very much at a church. This is very much the way we look at things today in a lot of ways. Pope Pius says, that's horrible! It made no difference. He's like, oh, you're breaking your own compact. It doesn't matter. Nothing in the letter of the law necessarily was specifically anti-church. Churches could still operate. But the precedent was set that keeping one's religious views to oneself, one's private life, that's the norm. You, you can be religious. Just do it in a church on a Sunday, and it shouldn't have anything to do with the rest of your week. Right? Do you see that at all in modern America? 
You can believe the flakiest stuff if you want. Just don't live it out in front of anybody else. The next year, a book called The Quest for the, Histor of the Historical Jesus was published. <laughs> you just booed Albert Schweitzer. Albert Schweitzer. Anyway, this, in many ways, is the polar opposite of what we just talked about in France. Because Albert Schweitzer's like, you totally should live out Christianity. You should absolutely, in every fiber of your being, live out what it means to be Christian. Every day. This isn't a church thing. In fact, churches are crap. Everything they believe is wrong. Everything they say about Christ is wrong. Jesus was wrong. But you should totally live out what he did. Help me out here. Summarize. Well, and if you sit there you go, is that really a good summary of what Albert Schweitzer wrote? Yeah, we'll talk about that next week. Summarize this for me. Where are we at in history? Pardon me? Oh, yeah. What were you saying, Tim? Well, this whole idea of war and war and war and war and war, and you can totally see why Albert Schweitzer goes, could we try some peace? Could we maybe try some peace? Please, at a time when everybody is totally about killing one another, can we please try to live out a little peace? Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much that your truth never changes. We pray that you be glorified, not just by what we do, but why we do it, how we do it. Help us, Lord, to have your heart, your passion for reaching the lost, not beating them, not winning against them, but winning them. Help us, Lord, to love you well. In Jesus' name, amen.